So understanding that um, what we uh, are engaging on are the writings of, uh, uh, of Walter Rodney, especially in terms of the application of, uh, uh, of Marxism um, in the third world. And um, let me just start by uh, reading the, f uh, the first two lines so that we can be able to uh, ground the kind of, of, of ideas that Walter Rodney uh, championed. So what we understand is that uh, we're striving to establish links between the study of either African continent or the African peoples abroad and uh, the material conception of labor, uh, understanding as labor is the basis for the other global approaches to human history, which present their analysis in terms of class and other social formations. This universality has certain advantages since African history must be evaluated not as a discrete and isolated eternity, but as part of uh, human development. That's uh, what uh, Rodney writes on page 74 of Marx, uh, Marx, decolonial Marxism. So our understanding, uh, which is quite important to, uh, to base on, uh, on these issues is that um, Rodney, as he continues in the line, uh, in the line of thought that he had, he had put forward uh, in how Europe underdeveloped Africa, he speaks about uh, the important questions of the fact that African societies also had their own um, civilization, or they also had their uh, own modes of production in which they engaged on um, that. Um, uh, were able to, to produce failure in the societies that, uh, that they lived in. And this kind of, of understanding is, is important in the sense that uh, to falsify or to discredit uh, the African societies, societies which uh, only came into history with their contact in Europe. Of course, uh, by that we mean the question of um, of, of um, uh, colonization. So it's quite important to, um, uh, uh, to understand that when we are dealing with um, mostly the question of, of um, uh, that has been propagated mostly by bourgeoisie uh, European historians that are in actual fact uh, uh, in Africa, there was no question of, uh, of development. Only, uh, Africans only came uh, to be able to develop through the health or the so-called uh, advantages that were brought uh, forward by um, uh, uh, by colonialism. Can you uh, go to the next slide, if you don't mind, Joseph? So uh, I think what uh, um, is quite important uh, as we see them, um, how we have uh, periodized at uh, the different epochs in, in African history. So what Rodney and other historians of his time try to do is to try and, and reconstruct um, the history of Africa, of what it was before uh, colonization. And, but what is also, what is also a, a very important is that mostly uh, some historians tend to uh, glamorize or make it as if African societies 
of that time before encounter with Europe were societies which uh, which did not have their challenges or which did not have their, their, their limitations. So it's quite important that <clears throat> as, as we are currently uh, seeing the biopic of, of that, uh, the woman king uh, in, the civil, in the civilization of, the, of, uh, of Dahomey, uh, it's actually one of the in one of the chapters that Walter Rodney writes in chapter four of High Europe and the Developed Africa. He speaks about the fact that uh, in uh, initially uh, the civilization of of Dahomey had refused to engage uh, in slave trade, but uh, after many years of resistance, uh, the European slave traders blocked all ports of entry to the to the Dahomey Empire and isolated them economically. So that led to them being forced to engage uh, in slave trade. And also that is used by mostly uh, European historians that or actually Africans also engaged in slave trade, but without giving the context of what was happening at the time and what kind of situations or, or necessities that forced them to engage in, uh, in, uh, uh, in such acts. So then when we see, um, the question of Africa in the epoch of the internal of internalization of trade in the 15th to the to the mid 19th century, uh, it's also quite important that <clears throat> to mention that uh, the way in which African societies uh, were integrated into these international uh, zones of trading was not at uh, out of their own willingness, but it was out of the need of of uh, expansion uh, of, uh, of, of labor and expansion of accumulation of, of, uh, of wealth for European societies that forced the question of, uh, of, of enslavement of people of, of the different worlds, you know? As, and as the, in, in, in this time when Africans were, were being abducted and taken across the Atlantic um, uh, to the Americas, what we know as, as uh, Rodney wrote extensively that it was for the need to be able to provide labor that was much needed uh, when, uh, when, the, uh, when the Europeans had colonized uh, the North and the South uh, and the and, and Southern, uh, Southern American countries. So the understanding um, that in today's epoch where we find ourselves of, uh, of um, what we call neocolonialism, as uh, Guruma writes uh, uh, very well in his book, um, Neocolonialism, the Last Stage of Imperialism, where he speaks about the fact that uh, we might have exited the stages of direct, of direct colonialism, but uh, where we are today um, uh, is that we are in the crisis in which uh, the Comprador bourgeoisies in the third worlds are still saving uh, their metropolitan masters and the metropolitan bourgeoisies. And uh, they use popular language and rhetoric to try and win over the hearts of the masses, whom who then in turn give them political power, which they then squander and sell out the interests of the, of the African people. So to be able to understand the whole crisis or the, all the contradictions that we find ourselves in in, uh, in today's time, 
it's quite important to familiarize and ground ourselves uh, with, with the work of Walter Rodney and also how his life was uh, ultimately, um, uh, no, untimely ended uh, in the hands of uh, President Forbes uh, uh, Puman. So to be able to understand Rodney's life, it's, it was a life of praxis and a life that was uh, dedicated, not just only to academic work, but also what he termed as guerrilla intellectualism. So to be able to bring out the legacy or to understand what Rodney's text or what is the importance of decolonial Marxism today when it comes to the question of the third world is the fact that um, what Rodney was uh, was writing about uh, in the in the sixth Pan African Pan Congress, which happened in 1976, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Walter Rodney was not able to deliver that paper uh, personally himself. But the paper that he wrote is titled uh, "International Class Struggles in the Caribbean and Africa," where he goes on on a full rampage and critiques may, most of the governments that had taken over post uh, formal formal colonization in uh, in Africa and he attempts to and uh, to portray a picture that uh, the ideas of real pan-Africanism mostly have been uh, have been abandoned uh, by these petty bourgeoisies who have wasted the energy and the sacrifices of the masses for their own personal gains so uh, Although it might this historical uh, questions or this uh, the writings of, of Rodney cover a large extensive time in history and also adding the years in which uh, after 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 that uh, after that uh, after he was made that that is important that for us as today's current generation generation of, of Marxists what are the lessons that we can learn from the life of Walter Rodney from the scholarship of Walter Rodney, from his attempts to ground himself with uh, the working class people of Jamaica uh, in, in the 60s and until he was expelled. Uh, and then his work uh, in, um, uh, in Tanzania. And also importantly, uh, the, uh, the book that was published before Decolonial Marxism, uh, the one where he speaks about the Russian revolution and, uh, and the third world where he speaks about uh, the 1917 uh, revolution of the Bolsheviks. I think it's also quite important for Marxists uh, in the third world, although uh, we know that there's been a certain level of, uh, of resistance to Marxism as a doctrine to be used uh, as a tool for liberation in, 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 in Africa, but we have ample examples of leaders like Cabral, uh, Sankara, Walter Rodney himself, we have leaders like Mondlane and uh, Samora Machel in, in, in Mozambique, and many other towering African Marxist, Marxist giants who have tried to localize, as Mao did uh, in China, as Lenin and the Bolshevik, Bolsheviks did, did in Russia, as, uh, uh, um, as, also, as also it happened in um, uh, uh, in Vietnam and in many South, uh, Southern American countries where we have found that Marxism has been stretched as Fanon 
had had uh, had, had, had told us that we must be able to stretch Marxism so that they can be able to respond to our concrete question, uh, concrete conditions and the concrete questions that, uh, uh, that we're facing. And for Rodney to be able to answer those questions, he starts by trying to reconstruct the history of Africa, of Africa before colonization, the history of Africa when it was colonized and how Africa became or became came to be entangled in the larger global uh, in, in the larger global uh, capitalist uh, domination of imperialism that we find ourselves in today okay on on the part of of uh, super exploitation and and uh, foreign exploitation it's i think it's one of the of the most important uh, theoretical positions of uh, of of Walter Rodney's work that uh, he also in in Europe, uh, how Europe developed Africa, uh, he also writes that um, the exploitation of the third worlds and its benefits to the uh, uh, to the metropolitan countries was not only a benefit for the uh, for the bourgeoisie in Europe, but also for the working class in Europe. So, and this is kind of a very uh, controversial position to take, you know. And uh, but if you spend much more, much of the time, much of the time uh, in uh, in these debates, you will find that it's some of, some of the debates, mostly in, in South Africa, where we have um, a Trotskyite tradition, which was led by the likes of the uh, late uh comrade martin legacy uh and some comrades from a movement called the unity movement in south africa so this was um uh the Trotskyite uh tradition in, in south africa they are they are they hold a different view uh to what walter rodney and du bois actually yeah du bois writes in uh i think in uh, black uh in yeah uh, in black reconstruction i think in the in the 90s that's that's the book that he uh where, where he writes about the question about the solidarities which we can try to build between the white working class and the black working class and this these are important questions that have continued to to be thorny in most marxist organizations uh for example with the uh the black belt theory uh, that happened uh, that came with the uh, with the African um, uh, African American comrades in the Communist Party of uh, uh, of America, in the sense that uh, comrades like he, uh, like Harry Haywood and his contemporaries were speaking about the question about self uh, determination, you know, and how in most Marxist organizations, or rather in the Communist International, you will find that the question of race has not always been uh a question that was taken seriously or a question that was engaged on in an honest or, or in an honest manner or in an honest basis you will find that if such questions are being raised uh you will hear that no the actual ultimate struggle is the class struggle and we don't disagree that it, uh, the struggle is class but uh as we stretch marxism in african societies as lenin writes uh on the national question thesis in 1920 this about the fact that it would be no surprise to him if the struggle in the colonies takes a nationalist form and what do we mean by that when when we say that 
the struggle in the colonies will take a nationalist form is in the sense that this, uh, these African people have been exploited, oppressed, and also degraded as a nation. And for them to be able to mobilize themselves and mobilize the African working class amongst themselves, it is important that uh, they first rally themselves around the question of self-determination and, and, uh, and nation building. Then how do we then link this directly to the question that, uh, we, uh, uh, that we're seeing on this very slide of, on foreign exploitation and the question of super exploitation? It is quite important in the sense that uh, when we speak about the fact, uh, the fact of uh, extraction of value from the colonies, we speak about the fact, uh, we are saying that the workers in the third worlds are more heavily exploited as compared to the workers that are based uh, in the metropolitan countries. And how does, does then now capital get in between uh, the workers to try and demobilize them and divide them? Simply by the fact that when uh, European uh, workers in Europe are working in the different companies which, uh, which they're working in. We're not disagreeing that they're still workers and they're still exploited. That is very true. The, the level of exploitation of workers in the third world as compared to the workers in the first world is that workers in the first world are also offered what we call, uh, what, what Du Bois termed as the social wages of whiteness. And that in the sense that uh, besides the reality that they have, uh, they are not victims of lynching, uh, as Du Bois was writing uh, at the time, and the, uh, white, white, white working class people are, are not victims of lynching, they're not victims of, 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 of uh, humiliation, besides the question that they get the same wages as the black working class, but they also have a certain societal privilege or understanding that they enjoy in the society due to the question of white supremacy that has been, of course, uh, um, put together by uh, equation of uh, of uh, of racism and racialization. So, besides that, uh, the white working class in Europe also gets social welfare uh, benefits uh, from the government. They get housing allowances. They get um, um, also. Besides housing allowances, they also get education allowances, healthcare allowances that workers in uh, in the in the third world do not get. And in today's time, uh, if you compare uh, them, the African workers who are working in the mines of South Africa, working maybe let's just say for example, uh, the mine is being operated by Glencore, which is a, a Canadian company. It's uh, Glencore also owns a number of mines in South Africa. Um, you will find that the workers who are doing the same job as a worker that's working in Namibia, no, no, uh, not Namibia, I mean Australia or Canada, somewhere anywhere in the first world. A worker who's doing the same job, who's working in the same, uh, in the same, uh, in the mine that produces, produces the same products, let's just say a coal mine. You find that workers in, in the first world earn much more higher salaries as compared to workers who are, who are, who are working in the third world. So, this is a, an important question that Marxists, not just only Marxists of the third world, but even Marxists in the first world must honestly engage on that uh, 
we are not just going to magically um, uh, give um, give rise to Marx's proposition or prophecy of that workers of the world must unite. You know, yes, we want workers of the world to unite, but when before you even get to the question of workers of the world uniting, these contradictions that are arisen by capital between the workers themselves, which stops them from from uniting. The question of that, there is a high level of foreign exploitation that is happening uh, in the third worlds, and this level of super exploitation uh, stops um, us from thinking about the questions of so of solidarity between the workers in the third world and the workers in the third world. It is then uh, a duty of all Marxists, and in fact, um, all uh, even the Marxists who are working in the uh, in the labor movements to be able to expose this kind of uh, of of frontline activity that is done deliberately by uh, by capital to divide us and be able to overcome this these contradictions and challenges that are placed in front of us that uh, they are uh, definitely do not <coughs> help us to uh, to reach the end our, our end goal of socialism. And also, before we continue on the on the question of uh, 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 on the next slide, it's also quite important to mention that uh, when we were with Comrade Joseph uh, uh, just uh, in July in Cape Town, uh, we spoke about the article which was written by Chinedu that appears in Rape, that uh, he also dismisses this position that was taken by Walter Rodney on the question that. Um, is, and it's not only just what I wrote in Utik's position, also other dependency scholar, scholars like uh, Samir Amin also are of this view that uh, there's a question of super exploitation that is happening and facilitated by the metropolitan capitalist um, bourgeoisies who, are, who still continue to run the world through uh, multifaceted companies that uh, are, uh, are, all over, uh, are all over the world. So it's quite important that uh, these debates, we still continue to uh, to have them, not just only for debate sake, but also working towards building solidarity between the workers in the first world and workers in the third world. Can you, uh, you can move to the next slide. Okay, so on the historical roots of African under uh, underdevelopment, uh, Rodney seeks to explain the phenomenon of economic underdevelopment, the perspectives of eliminating it, and the concrete questions on of or on further development, always in relation to history, within the framework of historical interrelations by uh, concentrating on the main driving forces of social and economic development by analyzing phenomena and their causes as dialectic in the, uh, interdependencies. So what uh, we understand or what is, what is quite important to look out on these chapters when we speak about the historical roots of African underdevelopment, you will see if uh, you uh, you had read some of the um, uh, of the work of uh, of Rodney, the first uh, chapter uh, on how urban underdeveloped Africa. He speaks about uh, the question of development, and he also contrasts it with what do we mean by underdevelopment. So for Rodney, we cannot speak about uh, development outside the question of the uh, of the fact that there is underdevelopment, there is there is there is uh, underdevelopment. So 
what are these uh, historical roots that has caused Africa to be underdeveloped? Uh, I think it's uh, it's, it's quite uh, also it's it's quite obvious. I mean, if you have engaged in history, but it is not so obvious with uh, the the amount of bourgeoisie history uh, history that that has been written about how Africa was backwards, how Africa had not uh, had, uh, had not been part of uh, of history or in terms of of of, of developing themselves. Because as Rodney speaks and leading scholars like uh, uh, Frank Kunde speaks about the question of, uh, about how uh, the world the world systems of today function. This is uh, primarily the basis of the theoretical thinking or the theoretical lenses which we view under development in the third world, which is a maintained dialectic relation that happens because Europe develops at the expense of Africa. So then we have to question that, what do we mean by the fact that Africa is underdeveloped? It is underdeveloped uh, pretty much simply because of the fact that Europe continues to benefit economically out of uh, the labor that is, uh, uh, that is, uh, that is generated uh, in the third world um, uh, uh, countries. So, um, to be able to understand uh, Marxist dependency theory, uh, it's good to, for one to be able to to ground themselves in in the history of of of, of how this of how this uh, school of thought comes uh, into fruition, and some of this work is uh, mostly comes out to uh, to rebut the claims which were made by some racist or many racist scholars that have tried to uh, to defend or try to justify uh, colonialism and ultimately uh, the slave trade that happened uh, uh, in Africa and other parts of the world. So that is why uh, one, if uh, one is interested in this kind of questions, it's also, which I recommend that it's also important to to be able to, to read or to engage with the works of Eric Williams when he writes on capitalism and, and, and slavery. A quite important text that cannot be left out or cannot be read in isolation with how Europe other developed Africa, because primarily they speak about the same thing. They speak about the fact that uh, European societies are at the center or are at the core of the underdevelopment of African societies. Yeah, I think you can uh, go to the next slide. Okay, so now when uh, we're speaking about the question of the dependency theory uh, and Walter Rodney. Um, in, in fact, uh, recently I was having uh, an engagement with some comrades on Twitter about the fact that when one engages in most of um, academic work, especially in universities, uh, it is not so often that uh, the work of Walter Rodney is put up there as one of the 
most important voices when it comes to uh, the articulation of what we mean by dependency theory. I think it's uh, of late, it has been some work that has been done by people who are very much close uh, to his work or care about, uh, about his legacy. Because if you happen to undertake uh, development studies in, in universities, you are most likely to hear about Andre Frank Kunde, uh, Emmanuel Valderstein, uh, and the other and other other scholars that have engaged in uh, in the questions of uh, of development theories or dependency theory. But it is hardly or it's quite difficult unless if uh, like some of us we come from an from an activist background where we, where we came into the school of dependency theory via the work of uh, 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 of Walter Rodney. Uh, so in this book uh, that is uh, speaking about uh, Walter Rodney by Justin Erenyamamu, uh, uh, it is quite also an important text because uh, it speaks about the time of Walter Rodney or but around the time when Walter Rodney was was based in Tanzania and what many had, had have termed the uh, the first uh, generation of uh, post-independent uh, intellectuals uh, in the um, uh, in the University of of uh, uh, of, of, uh, of Dar es Salaam. So, in our understanding or our view, is that uh, it is not only people like Frank Andre Gunde who have written more extensively about, about the question of, uh, uh, of dependence. If that's why it is important that of in the late, uh, in the past few years, we have seen a re-emergence re of, of a need or actually people trying to engage with the ideas of Walter Rodney that we want to understand was Walter Rodney, what was his thinking and what is uh what was his um ideas of uh, uh of liberation uh i think uh, i will link this uh, this part uh, uh the, this slide with one of the sections that walter rodney writes that i have a very intimate intimate relationship with where he speaks about Development, a titled it development by contradiction. So, in this section, Rodney employs the lenses of dependency theory that um, the European societies did not actually want African societies um, to develop, but they would give them. This is an opportunity or a certain level of development so that they can be able to facilitate a level of exploitation of resources that are coming out are, that are coming out of the African countries. So the question of industrialization of, of places like, of, like South Africa or Egypt, uh, it is not out of the benevolence of the capitalists. It is not out of their uh, out of the fact that uh, they love South Africa so much that they decided that, okay, we're gonna build bridges, we're gonna uh, bring uh, South Africa into modernity in terms of, 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 uh, of infrastructural development. But that was 
a deliberate need deliberately done so that they can be able to facilitate their ability to extract resources out of those uh, out of those uh, third world countries so when we look into into in, into into how development had happened or it has been stalled by um, by uh, by europe um in one in one of the lectures that uh, that he gives um he speaks about how in uh in in ghana the Ghanaian the Ghanaian people were convinced that uh if they are able to produce cocoa they are going to develop into one of the best countries in the world to join the big economies in the world. But the, div uh, the development and extraction of cocoa was at the time of what Europe needs because Europe does not have all these all this resources. So they will say, okay, we, are going, we need cocoa from, um, from Ghana, we want to make coffee, uh, we also want to make uh, chocolates. Okay, it's fine, we, we need that from, uh, from, uh, from Ghana. And then they will go to Nigeria and say, okay, we are, we're investing on the plantation of rice, and then in South Africa, they had invested heavily in mining, right? So this investments, this foreign investments, which came or which come in different African countries or different African colonies, based on the strength of their countries in terms of the natural resources that, that they have, is not based on the fact that uh, these European societies want Africa to develop, but they want us to develop to a certain extent that can be able to facilitate the extraction of resources and profits outside of, of, of our countries. So the question of Africa having been industrialized, uh, it is some of the justifications that is, that are, that is used by uh, reactionary and racist politicians like Helen Zine in South Africa. She normally argues that no, actually colonialism was good. Look at South Africa, we built you bridges, we built you one, two, and three, we built you schools, we built you universities. But what she fails to understand was that these universities and these schools were built for the mere purpose that the African people can be can have a certain level of educational level so that they can, they can be able to read and write. Then they can graduate and become administrators in these industries that are run by um, uh, by the by the uh, European settlers, so the hallmark of Rodney's understanding of dependency theory is that uh, the development which might have happened, or in some countries which might have been completely stalled by Europe, was not out of their benevolence, was not out of out of the fact that they liked us. It was out of the fact that they had to, at the end of the day try to extract profits out of the third world. And quite inter inter interestingly, when such a resources that, that they are harvesting in that country, they can harvest for 40 years, 30 years, or whatever. Once it is done, they leave the country, and then they leave the indigenous people of that country improvised and um, under, living under extreme levels of poverty. So this is what has been the legacies or the realities of many African countries, not just only in Africa, but also all countries in the third world, which have been affected by uh, uh, European capitalism. That we, uh, European societies and European economy 
was built by them being 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 dependent being dependent on the resources or on the uh, labor that was provided by African people who are enslaved in the colonies, who are oppressed uh, also in uh, in the different colonies. I think we can move to the next slide. To answer this one, how did various factors enable underdevelopment and dependency? Uh, these are questions that, that can be that can be answered by the fact that simply uh, the defeat of the African people under many years of, of struggle of struggle and resistance uh, is what in, uh, enabled us to be in the position that we find ourselves today that we were defeated in the in the wars of of, of, uh, of colonialism and ultimately, subjugated, our lands taken, our sovereignty also taken away from us, and we became part of the globalist um, imperialist projects that still continues today. Yeah, um, one of the key, key ways that Europe and the global north today maintains this underdevelopment and dependency of the African continent is through trade. So um, Rodney, you know, Rodney says that this meant, well, he says that this meant that what was called international trade was nothing but the extension overseas of European interests insofar as there was a strategy to international trade and in production that supported it. The stra that strategy was firmly in European hands Europe had a monopoly of the economic intelligence of the international exchange system as a whole, but Western Europe was the only sector capable of viewing the system as a, as a whole. So, you know, during this period of um, European and of early European and African interaction, this part of, uh, of, the, of the slave trade, uh, Europe was the only, only uh, group or the only continent I was able to properly know that there were other parts of the world that existed. You know. um, they were the only one with a full picture of the of the of the world system, and this granted them an advantage in determining how to control international trade. So, for the most part, countries or for the most part, you know, um, nations on the African continent were unable to deal with Europe on an equal level. They didn't deal. They went equal partners in trade. And this unequal relationship of international trade exists even to this day, you know. Um, for the most part, a lot of African countries, lots of countries in, in, in the third world are forced to engage in, in trade that, that is um, economically harmful to the economies. They are forced to export raw materials and abandon abandon any sort of industrialization. Therefore, keeping them in the same trap of dependency and underdevelopment. Next slide. And an extension of this is also to the area of international law. You know, um, again, international law or the, or the international society has no you know, something that was created by the European empires, by France, Britain, Portugal, Spain, you know, and 
this heritage again still extends to the to the the modern day. You know, you see you see all these international institutions such as NATO, United Nations, the IMF, and the World Bank. These are all aspects or, or these are organizations that govern international diplomacy, and they all get their and they are all descendants of the of, of what we call early international international law, which was basically Europe legitimizing the existence of metropoles and dependencies. Uh, this law, even though it was called international law, was now created by uh, any non-European entities, not by uh, Asians or Africans or Latin Americans, was mostly created to further European interest. Next slide. Yeah, and under uh, 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 extraction and, and slavery, uh, broadly says, you know, African, Africa had little to say in the determination of, of the import and export content of its commerce with Europeans, the effectiveness of Europe's power to make decisions within the international trade system was best seen in the way that it selected what Africa could import. You know, as I previously mentioned, international trade and international law during this period was more where entirely extensions of European interests. There was no other party that were no other no other party's interest that was included in, in the creation of these international systems. You know, Europe wanted valuable resources and commodities, and they also wanted pure human labor, slave labor, that they would put to work in, in the Americas, in, in places like Brazil or the, or the United States. And so for Africans, their only role in this system was as exporters of human labor, of slave labor. Uh, next slide. Uh, Rodney Kuzanan says that once Africa and Europe became interlocked on the latter terms, it was beyond the capacity of any African state or society to change the status quo because Europeans reacted by force and other means to maintain a position. Um, so, so, as the previous speaker mentioned, the idea that Africans were just willing participants in the slave trade is now completely correct. Again, Rodney gives a multiple examples of African rulers and Afri or African peoples who were, who were very, very against the slave trade, but they were always forced, or they were always, uh, or they were always forced by Europe to engage in this heinous activity. You know, he gives the example of, uh, of Dahomey and how they were, and how they were uh, isolated by Europe and how they were forced by Europeans to maintain the slave trade. Uh, Rodney goes on to mention that, of course, it's only as the last resort that the capitalist metropoles need to use armed force to ensure the pursuit of favorable policies in the periphery. Normally, economic weapons are sufficient. For me, this quote is actually very, very um, profound because it's quite similar to the situation that a lot of countries in the global south find themselves. You know, of course, um, uh, of course, direct violent force is not something imperialist nations like 
America resorts to immediately. They tend to employ economic weapons like sanctions and blockades. You know, we see socialist nations like Cuba or nations that are anti-imperialist anti or with any sort of significant anti-Americanism like Venezuela subjected to a host of sanctions and, and, and blockades in order to make, in order to maintain their role as peripheries in the capitalist world system. And Rodney, of course, again, this, this, this economic, this use of economic weapons, again, as it's, as it's traces lineage from, from uh, Europe's, Europe's attempts to maintain the slave trade. You know, Rodney identifies out that homie, President Benin, was deprived of essential European goods and for just, just for resistance to slave trade. So we see that this use of economic weapons are not, a, are not an invention of the modern day era. They are something that's been going on since Africa and Europe or Europe embarked on, or since Europe embarked on its imperialist, imperial, imperialist actions. Uh, next slide. And due to the fact that Europe, as a, as a coordination of all these things, you know, international trade, international law, violence, slavery, or economic weapons, just sanctions, Europe was, has been able to determine the prices of, Afri of African labor, the price of African, African products, African commodities. So for the most part, Africa as a, as a, as a continent has been unable to independently determine the true price of what it produces and been able to reap the true benefits of what the, con what, what the continent and its workers and its peasants produce. Uh, Rodney states this when he says that because the nature of African exports was determined from outside the continent, questions such as the level of output and prices were decided outside of Africa. He goes on to say that a fundamental characteristics of centuries of Afro-European trade was that its dimensions were determined outside of Africa. But it is equally obvious that local conditions were bound in some ways to affect output, price, and the European choice of particular parts of the continent at particular, particular times. The emphasis on the overall global determinants is necessary in order to situate the mechanics of trade in Africa and a proper international perspective. And in doing so, one can immediately perceive striking similarity between the, trade, the early commerce and the subsequent colonial and neo-colonial trade. Um, a great book on this, uh, on equal exchange, this um, external determination of prices in peripheral regions like Africa is on equal exchange by Gary Emmanuel. You know, um, he pretty much states the same thing that, that Rodney is, is explaining here, saying that, uh, saying that you know, um, due to the facts, due to the histories of, of colonialism in, in the global South, these countries are unable to determine what they produce and what they produce isn't compensated on the same level as um, if we had been produced in, in, the, in, the global, in the global North. You know, um, take, for, take for example, you know, mining or farming. Again, 
whether I, if you compare it, whether it's like the, the same level of technology used to use to mine or the same level of technology used to farm, same labor, same education. But it's the fact that these countries are located in the peripheries, they are unable to receive the full compensation of their labor compared to, like, say, the, the American or the European farmer, the European miner. Uh, next slide. Rodney goes on to explain the role of technology, saying that the like, European technology was not as superior to that in other parts of the world in the 15th century, as is often as on a supremacy in that aspect at the present time, is itself more, more of a consequence than the cause of their hegemony over the rest of the world. So they have been, if you, you know, um, the traditional, the conventional narrative about Europe was that Europe, you know, was able to colonize or was able to get ahead of other regions in the world because they were more technologically, technologically advanced. This is completely incorrect. You know, Europe compared to, not even just Africa, but compared to, say, India or Asia or, or China, was, they were not as, you know, in the, as advanced as those Civilizations, they are Europe's, Europe's, Europe's um, later, Europe's pulling away, pulling away from these regions is not, is not something that is not, is not a result of their inane technological superiority, but rather it was a result of, was a result of them being able to, being able to impose their hegemony by the rest of the world, you know. Um, as they were able, as they were able to draw regions of the world into their hub orbits, they were able to exploit those countries. They were able to, you know, gain a lot of capital from from uh, from all the natural natural resources. They were able to extract from those countries. This was what acted as the spring for the technological revolution that occurred in Europe. So, for the most part, Europe's technological advance owes its role to Europe's imperialism, not the other way around. Next slide. Um, and what the definition of this point states that because of the structure of, of international trade and because of the conscious decisions of European states, Africa was robbed of the opportunity to benefit from the scientific heritage of man. Um, next slide. So as I just previously mentioned, Europe's technological advance was due to the riches and wealth it gained from its imperialist actions across the world. And, you know, in a famous, very famous passage in Capital, Marx explains this when he states that um, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the Aboriginal populations, the turning of Africa into a commercial barren for the hunting of black skins signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. So this is Marx's idea, Marx's concept of primitive accumulation. Therefore, that in order for capitalism to that would what allowed for capitalism to develop in Europe was the violent, the violent actions, the violent imperialism 
against the populations of the third world, against the, 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 you know, the slave trade of Africa, the, the mining in, in Latin America, you know, the massacres or the massacre of the genocide of the Native American population in the United States. These were these were all this was this was this were the, this were the, the engine for the for capitalist development in, in Europe. So next one. And this um, this idea that capitalism developed through the capitalism developed through um, through the usage of violence, through through the usage of um, of heinous acts like slavery, has been properly expounded in Capitalism and Williams. Sorry, capitalism and, capitalism and slavery, written by Eric Williams, who was a, a Trinidadian, a, a politician from Trinidad and Tobago, was considered the father of the nation. And he wrote about how the surplus or the benefits of, sla of slavery resulted in the, the, the development of capitalism, as we, as we just mentioned. He, um, in addition, you know, um, various scholars have also pointed out that Europe's colonies, for the most part, were the most, were some of the most um, potent sources for capital. In, uh, for the development of capitalism. Um, Rodney states when he says, John Stuart Mill went so far to assert that as far as England was concerned, the trade of the West Indies is hardly to be considered as external trade, or more resembles the traffic between town and, town and country. What this means is that Europe, Europe's colonies were, was considered pretty much part and parcel of these European nations. They were not considered a separate part of the, of the world. The interactions between them, the extraction, were considered a vital part of these European economies. Um, next slide. And so therefore, it is incorrect to talk about Europe's development and Africa's economic development as two separate phenomena. Um, these two are completely and dialectically interlinked. Uh, it states, just as the slave trade and overseas trade in general had multiply effects on European development, so it had multiply effects on African on that development. Where there was integration across national boundaries in Europe, there was disintegration in Africa. The creation of a growing point in the European economy and the establishment of backward and forward linkages were all out of the question in Africa because foreign trade wasn't a logical extension of international internal production and exchange. What this means is that Europe's interactions with Africa severed and blocked the development of, of the continent. Um, Africa wasn't able to properly integrate various, various nations in, in, Africa, in Africa were properly able to, able to integrate. You know, Europe, the foreign trade of slaves or the, just the foreign, the unequal foreign trade that occurred um, between Europe and Africa sort of blocked development of any coherent or logical development of African states. 
And so what this means is that the historic underdevelopment of Africa and Europe um, and Europe's development are both sides of the same, uh, sorry, of, of opposite, opposite sides of the same coin. That the fact that Africa today is chronically underdeveloped, chronically, as, as, a, as a chronic poverty, is connected to the fact that Europe is one of, is, is one of the most um, developed parts of the world. Next slide. And then um, Rodney goes on to mention the scramble for Africa, explaining that a few areas of the continent became crucial for European investments, namely Algeria, Egypt, South Africa, and Congo. Apart from the Suez Canal and the South African and Congolese mines, these investments in the African continent in the late 19th century and subsequently, and subsequently was primarily to facilitate the production agricultural staples to be utilized by new industries in Europe. They all demonstrate that Europe's needs by the late 19th century were themselves a product of the immense quickening of economic lives over the previous four centuries. And one of the factors in that quickening was the unequal association with Africa. Before the 19th century, Europe was incapable of penetrating the African continent because the balance of force at its disposal was inadequate but the same technological changes which created the need to penetrate Africa also created the power to conquer Africa. So basically, you know, um, this crime for Africa, the Berlin Conference, which partitioned Africa between different European imperialist powers, you know, um, this was only possible to the technological changes and the uh, improvement of economic life in Europe, they necessitated the demand for more agricultural staples to be exported to Europe. To Europe. So, as I mentioned previously, that Europe's technological superiority was a result of its unequal relationship with the rest of the world. This technological superiority would go on to to result, to result in the effective colonization of the African continent, it would be able to completely, completely divide the continent amongst themselves. Uh, and this would be the beginning of formal colonization of the African continent. Next slide. And this colonization would be the of the imposition of capitalism in Africa. The, tra the transition to forms of production that used African labor in South Africa resulted in the rise of economic and social institutions that ensured the partition of a large number of Africans in the money economy and also ensured that the value created would be siphoned off to capitalist Europe. That gave rise to particular forms of structural dependence, which we know today. Visibly seen in the bank branches, the import export agencies, the manufacturing subsidies, the mining companies, the pattern of road and railway networks, and so on. So the advent of capitalism in Africa would come with colonialism and would completely form the African continent. Um, the African economy would become would, would be created exactly solely to solely to uh, please the uh, European imperialists, um, the the mines that created the, real, like the, real, the, real, the railway networks 
were all created to take commodities out of the continent and to Europe and to America. And this aspect of colonialism would continue on after independence in, in many African countries, and it would be, and it's what you confirm with um, new colonialism, which meant that the economic, the economic, the economic dependence of Africa on Europe and America, the U.S. was still a was still a was still a, was still, a, was still, a, was still a given. Uh, next slide. Yeah, like I just mentioned, uh, these these roots show themselves in neo-colonialism today. So um, Rodney explains that the notion of the first four centuries of Afro-European trade represents the roots of African underdevelopment is doubly attractive because it was an actual carryover of some of the mechanisms that connected to spheres of metropole independence. At the metropolitan end, there were certain there were there were the insurance companies and the shipping companies. While in Africa itself, they had arisen certain social formations that were immediately available to operate within the colonial economies from the 1880s onwards. Those are the African traders already mentioned as the forerunners of the modern service sector. So long as it, as it is not based on settlements, the colonial system requires compradors throughout most of Africa. These compradors at the start of the colonial period were already performing that function in the independent trade economy. So the, the colonial and neo-colonial economy requires that, that certain, certain individuals in Africa act as compradors, meaning agents of foreign of a foreign power, agents who facilitate imperialist exploitation. Uh, this is where the idea of a comprador bourgeoisie comes from. The idea that these, these capitalists in Africa are for the most are subservient to foreign capital, they are subservient to imperialists and they are on the, and they are, and they are for the most part enemies of the of the violation they, they, they occupy. Next slide. Um, Joseph, Joseph, I don't know if you want to take this one because for the most part, I'm not yeah. very. Yeah, yeah. I can take this pretty quickly. Um, this isn't part of the assigned reading for this week, but we thought we'd just include a very brief note on the Angolan question since Rodney has that short speech he made at Howard University where he talks about it. Just to summarize these two quotes, he's basically talking about the fact that there was a, a trend of support for UNITA, which was the uh, in the context of the Angolan Civil War in the 1970s, 80s, and in the 90s. Uh, UNITA versus the MPLA. UNITA was an organization backed by the CIA and the apartheid regime. Uh, and it was basically presented itself as a Black nationalist organization uh, fighting for uh, independence of Angola. This is after the Portuguese withdrew from Angola, but they were still supporting UNITA to gain, basically, as Chris just mentioned, compradors to run Angola afterwards. The MPLA was backed by Cuba and the USSR. It was clearly socialist and it would have advocated, and it did advocate because it won the Civil War uh, for breaking from. Uh, breaking dependency, breaking from the West and, and American hegemony. Rodney's basically criticizing the fact that some took the position of viewing it 
through the lens of national consciousness or black national consciousness, uh, rather than viewing it through the dimensions of imperialism, anti-imperialism, and a class analysis. And this chapter is really, it's, it's quite short, but it's a really interesting speech to apply some of what we've been discussing about neocolonialism, about taking a Marxist or class analysis uh, or socialist analysis on these questions and how there, are, there is a need to reconcile that with a national or uh, analysis based on race, but he's criticizing the fact that sometimes if that's the exclusive position taken, it can lead to the practical ramification of support for a group like UNITA, which was very clearly supported by the CIA and by apartheid and was going to impose, reimpose neocolonialism, Western hegemony on Angola. Um, and yeah, th those are some quotes that are pretty good. And that's pretty much the presentation. So these are our discussion questions for this week. Basically, starting with uh, the first section discussing how, or just in general, talking about how Rodney backs up Fanon's claim that Europe is a creation of the third world and his engagement with dependency theory. Then that really good quote uh, where he talks about Africa being robbed of the opportunity to benefit from the scientific heritage of man and just reflecting on the role of technology in general, how it advanced because of capitalism, how it helped reinforce underdevelopment. And then a discussion of how in the first section Rodney puts forward labor and we can continue that discussion about super exploitation because that really centers labor as a part of analysis. Those are our three overarching questions, but then we wanna know what questions you may